Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-Per-View, now on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, and the host website Podomatic. And the first subject this week is, by far the biggest subject of the week, Brexit. This is in the Daily Mail. EU is prepared to delay Brexit until at least July, and it could be extended even longer to give Theresa May extra time to get deals to quit Europe through Parliament. EU leaders are preparing to delay Brexit until July or possibly longer if Parliament cannot agree a deal, it has been claimed. Brussels is reportedly expecting the British government to ask for an extension to Article 50, allowing Theresa May more time to get a deal through Parliament. Mrs May is expected to lose the Commons vote on her withdrawal deal on Tuesday, raising the prospect of a no-deal departure on March the 29th. Brexit could be postponed even longer if a general election or second referendum takes place, The Guardian reported. An EU source told the newspaper, should the Prime Minister survive and inform us that she needs more time to win round Parliament to a deal, a technical extension up to July will be offered. The article goes on. EU leaders could reportedly agree to delay Brexit at a leaders' summit organised by Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council. Should the EU not agree to a postponing of Brexit, then the UK would leave the EU without a deal on March 29th. A longer extension could clash with the European Parliament elections scheduled for May. Britain is currently not expected to take part in the elections and will no longer have any MEPs. But if Britain were still in the Union when the new European Parliament meets in July, then the UK could be expected to provide members. Mrs May is facing a heavy defeat on Tuesday as Conservative backbenchers prepare to unite with Labour to vote the deal down. Brussels is preparing to offer fresh assurances over the Irish backstop, which Tory rebels fear could leave Britain tied to the EU's trading rules indefinitely. Meanwhile, Mrs May warned of a catastrophic and unforgivable breach of trust in democracy if Brexit is stopped. One of her predecessors, Sir John Major, called for Article 50 to be revoked as he warned it would be morally reprehensible to crash out without a deal. When you turned out to vote in the referendum, you did so because you wanted your voice to be heard, she said. Some of you put your trust in the political process for the first time in decades. We cannot or must not let you down. The article goes on. Labour is also facing calls to put forward a vote of no confidence. Labour is also facing calls to put forward a vote of no confidence in Mrs May and a general election could take place should the government lose. Well, how much time does Theresa May and the government want? And there's a reason why Brexit is the mess it is and it's gone on for as long as it has, which I'll get to in a minute. Another article here in the Daily Mail. This was published on the 15th of January, two days after the previous article. The EU calls for Brexit to be cancelled after May's crushing defeat. Council President Donald Tusk says no one wants no deal. Are you sure? And asks who will finally have the courage to say what the only positive solution is. Well, of course, EU wants Brexit to be cancelled. <laughs> The idea is the European Union absorbs more and more countries, not lets any countries go. The EU has hinted that Brexit should be cancelled after Theresa May's deal was voted down in the biggest defeat suffered by a Prime Minister in over 100 years. EU Council President Donald Tusk suggested if MPs cannot agree a deal and don't want to crash out without one, they should consider reversing their historic vote. While EU Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker warned that time was almost up as he announced no deal planning will be ramped up in the wake of the defeat, he made a dash back to Brussels for emergency Brexit meetings as the deal was voted down by 432 votes to 202, meaning a staggering 230 MPs voted against her. Mr Tusk said, If a deal is impossible and no one wants no deal, then who will finally have the courage to say what the only positive solution is? 
Mr Juncker said last night the risk of a disorderly withdrawal of the United Kingdom is increased with this evening's vote. While we do not want this to happen, the European Commission will continue its contingency to work to help ensure the EU is fully prepared. I urge the United Kingdom to clarify its intentions as soon as possible. Time was almost up. While the people of Britain have made their intentions clear, the article goes on. While Guy Verhofstadt, the European Parliament's Brexit chief, accused British MPs of not knowing what they want, what the public do, he tweeted the UK Parliament and said what it does not want. Now is the time to find out what UK parliamentarians want. In the meantime, the rights of citizens must be safeguarded. The PM's official spokesman said there are no plans for her to meet with Mr Juncker today, but she is under huge pressure from all sides to head back to the negotiating table in Brussels to tear up the hated Irish backstop. MEPs in the European Parliament will debate the state of the Brexit deal this morning. It comes as Germany promised to launch a fresh round of Brexit talks. Germany's Foreign Minister Heiko Maas yesterday said talks will start back up, but in a blow to number 10 he downplayed hopes of a major overhaul to the deal, saying he does not think substantial changes will be made to the deal. In a dramatic day in Parliament which will go down in the history books, over 118 Tory MPs defied their leader to join Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP and the DUP in voting a deal down. And Jeremy Corbyn seized on the defeat to announce he is pushing a vote of no confidence in the PM tonight. If Mrs May loses then she could be ousted from number 10 and another general election could be called. But despite the humiliation, Mrs May vowed to fight on to try to stay as leader and get a Brexit deal through the deeply divided Parliament. Rising to her feet moments after the drubbing, a clearly shaken Mrs May said the government would listen and announced she would fight a no-confidence vote tonight. But she threw down the gauntlet to her MP critics to come up with an alternate plan to deliver Brexit. She said yesterday, it is clear that the House does not support this deal, but tonight's vote tells us nothing about what it does support, nothing about how or even if it intends to honour the decision of the British people took in a referendum Parliament decided to hold, she said. People, particularly EU citizens who have made their home here, and UK citizens living in the EU, deserve clarity on these questions as soon as possible. Those whose jobs rely on our trade with the EU need that clarity. Remainers and Brexiteers were jubilant about the rank, with Boris Johnson saying the size was even larger than he had expected. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon held the setback for the government, while the Liberal Democrats said it was the beginning of the end for Brexit. And Downing Street sources said in the wake of the devastating result, which threatens to plunge the Brexit process further into chaos, it would be reaching out to senior parliamentarians in a bid to find a way forward. The pound rose sharply against the US dollar and euro as markets seemingly concluded that the UK's departure from the EU would become less likely to happen. The shattering blow for the PM came despite her making a final plea for critics to think again, insisting her deal was the only realistic option on the table. After hours of desperate arm twisting, she begged MPs to recognise it was the most important vote they would cast in their careers. After hours of desperate arm twisting, she begged MPs to recognise it was the most important vote they would cast in their careers, and every member would have to justify and live with their actions. At least two ministerial aides, Tom Purseglove and Hetty Hughes, resigned to go against Mrs May. Fears had been growing during the day that the government was on track for catastrophe, but senior sources had still seemed hopeful they could keep the margin below 200 votes. There's an article here on BBC News. At a glance, the UK's four Brexit options. This was published on July 2018. With the UK on course to leave the European Union in March next year, the country faces four possible scenarios. Leave with a deal. 
The UK and the EU both insist they want as amicable a divorce as possible, with a legal agreement setting out the kind of relationship they will have when the UK is no longer a member of the club. Prime Minister Theresa May wants to keep close ties with the EU in certain areas, such as trade and agricultural products and allowing skilled migrants to access to jobs in the UK. She says her plan would allow Britain to take back control of its laws, money and borders, just like people voted for in the 2016 EU referendum, while also allowing as frictionless trade as possible and avoiding a physical border for Northern Ireland. But it has been attacked as an unworkable compromised by people from both the Remain and Leave ends of the debate. The EU may also decide to reject it, but the two sides are still hoping to strike some kind of deal by the autumn and despite criticism and ministerial resignations, Mrs May believes this is the best option. Well, does she believe it or is it a deal that appeases the Eurocrats? Leave without a deal. A clean break with the EU, the UK would fall back on its membership of the World Trade Organization, the global body governing international trade. UK exports to the EU would be subject to the same customs checks and taxes the EU currently imposes on countries like the United States. Those arguing for this option, the so-called hard Brexiteers, say it would create a truly independent nation able to strike its own beneficial trade deals around the world. But opponents say it would be catastrophic for British business and have warned about chaos at the borders, higher food prices and shortages in the shops. Stay in the EU. There's five paragraphs for that option. There could be a lot more for what that would mean. Anyway, I'll read what it says. The UK has formally triggered the mechanism to leave the EU at 11 o'clock p.m. GMT on 29th of March 2019. To reverse that at this late stage would mean a huge loss of political face and probably require a new Prime Minister with the backing of voters in a general election. European Council President Donald Tusk has said he believes Brexit can be halted but there is some debate about whether the Article 50 process, a two-year legal mechanism taking the UK out of the EU, is reversible. If the UK did leave and wanted to immediately rejoin, it would need all the other EU member states to agree. A less formal version of staying in the EU would be if the UK strikes a deal that keeps it in the EU's trade arrangements, the customs union and the single market, and agrees to free movement of people on the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. This would amount to staying in the EU, Brexiters argue. Yeah, basically a Norway-style deal, which is not Brexit at all. That's the one that the EU would desire, that's the one that the Remainers in government would desire and obviously the political class in general hold another referendum this is a possibility the uk government has ruled this out but there have been a number of people calling for a fresh vote including justin greening with parliament apparently split over what kind of brexit it wants a referendum on the final deal agreed by theresa may in brussels might yet end up being the only way to break the deadlock those campaigning for another referendum say voters should get the final say including the option of staying in Labour's leadership say a general election should be held rather than another referendum. You see, because we live in a free democratic country, then what that means is when there's a referendum, the biggest democratic vote in the country's history, British history no less, people are talking about another referendum. Isn't it great that we live in a free democratic country where that can happen? And there's another article here on BBC News. There's an article here on the... BBC News website. Brexit. What is the No Deal WTO option? The Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt says the chance of a No Deal Brexit are increasing by the day. The International Trade Secretary Liam Fox has been quoted as saying the chances of a No Deal are 60-40. And the Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, says they are uncomfortably high. There seems to be a pattern developing here. Recent debate about No Deal, which would mean the UK leaving the European Union next year without any withdrawal agreement, has focused on the fact that the UK would automatically fall back on World Trade Organization rules. These rules 
would apply automatically to UK trade with the EU and other countries with which the EU has free trade deals. So what would WTO rules mean in practice? First, the basics. What is the WTO? The WTO is the place where countries negotiate the rules of international trade. 164 countries are members, and if they don't have free trade agreements with each other, they are trade under WTO rules, which are Every WTO member has a list of tariffs, taxes on imports of goods, and quotas, which are limits on a number of goods, that they apply to other countries. These are known as their WTO schedules. The average EU tariff is pretty low, about 2.6% for non-agricultural products, but in some sectors tariffs can be quite high. Under WTO rules, cars and car parts, for example, will be taxed at 10% every time they cross the UK-EU border. And agricultural tariffs are significantly higher, rising to an average of over 35% for dairy products. After Brexit, the UK could choose to lower tariffs or waive them altogether in an attempt to stimulate free trade. That could mean some cheaper products coming into the country for consumers, but it could also risk driving some UK producers out of business. It's important to remember that under the WTO's most favoured nation rules, the UK could not lower tariffs for the EU or any specific country alone. It would have to treat every other WTO member around the world in the same way. What about other checks and costs? These are what are known as non-tariff barriers and include things such as product standards and safety regulations. Once the UK is no longer part of the EU, there needs to be a system for mutually recognising each other's standards and regulations. Under a no-deal Brexit, this may not happen, at least not immediately. You can argue that it might seem unreasonable if the EU was to go from imposing no checks on UK products at borders the day before Brexit to insisting on all sorts of checks one day later, even though the UK had not changed any of its rules and regulations. But one source close to the WTO says that EU would be well within its rights to insist on checks in the absence of any mutual recognition agreement. That is one of the differences between suddenly falling back on WTO rules in a no-deal scenario and a more gradual transition to WTO rules, in which many of these issues could be ironed out. Non-tariff barriers would also have an even greater impact on the service sector, which makes up about 80% of the UK economy. Doesn't the UK already trade with many countries on WTA rules? Yes, it does, as part of the EU. Examples include the United States and China, Brazil and Australia. In fact, it's any country with which the EU and therefore the UK has not signed a free trade agreement. That's when WTA rules kick in, but it's more complicated than that. Those big economies don't just rely on WTA rules. They also have a series of bilateral agreements with the EU on top of that. The US, for example, has at least 20 agreements with the EU that help regulate specific areas of trade, covering everything from wine and bananas to insurance and energy efficiency labelling. In the event of a no-deal Brexit and an abrupt change in relations, the UK could well have no such deals in place and will be in new territory. Both sides would make efforts to introduce some stopgap measures to keep their economies moving, but a last-minute breakdown in negotiations would prove very difficult. It's also worth remembering that 44% of all UK exports in 2017 went to the European Union on free trade terms as part of the single market. That's down from 55% in 2006, but the EU is still by far the largest UK export market. Clearly, this is not going to be a situation where all trade stops and there is collapse in terms of the economy as a whole, said WTO Director General Roberto Azevedo when he was asked in a BBC interview last year about the potential effect of a hard Brexit on the UK and European economies. But it's not going to be a walk in the park. It's not like nothing will happen. There will be an impact. The tendency is that prices will go up, of course, because you have to absorb the cost of that disruption. Some people say it won't be a problem. Yes, some supporters of Brexit argue that no deal is the best way forward because it would allow the UK to pursue an independent trade policy immediately, to go off and start signing its own trade deals. That is not the government's view or the EU's view, nor is it the view of the vast majority of businesses. 
A number of recent articles by supporters of Brexit have made reference to the WTO's trade facilitation agreement, which came into force in 2017, arguing that it obliges the EU to treat the UK fairly. But that does not stand up to scrutiny. A TFA is aimed at primarily less developed countries and it seeks to encourage transparency and streamline bureaucratic procedures. It does mean the EU cannot discriminate against the UK, but it does not mean the UK can expect to be treated in the same way that it is now. The UK would be treated like any other third country, and in the absence of any trade agreement, that means tariffs and border checks. Will the UK have to rejoin the WTO after Brexit? No, it is already a member in its own right, but it will have to agree a new list of tariff schedules once it is no longer part of the EU. Like many other parts of the Brexit negotiations, that could be harder than it sounds. The UK has already submitted documents to the WTO in Geneva which say that it wants to make a few technical changes to its current commitments as an EU member but otherwise leave them unchanged. But other countries will want to make sure they are no worse off than they are now after Brexit. While the UK is seeking the same schedules, even though after leaving the EU it will represent a much smaller market. One problem for both the UK and the EU surrounds proposals they have submitted for splitting up their current quotas after Brexit for the import of sensitive agricultural products such as beef, lamb and sugar from elsewhere in the world. These proposals have already attracted complaints from other countries including the United States and time is running rather short to complete what are always complex negotiations in which every country will stick up for its own interests. With a bit of goodwill, the UK hopes it will be able to resolve the debate about WTO schedules but one of the dangers of any deal Brexit is that there might not be much goodwill around, especially if it meant that the UK was refusing to pay the more than £39 billion it's provisionally agreed it owes the EU as it leaves. Well, there's some debate about whether we owe the EU anything. The article finishes, so this is a technical issue, but politics will also play a big role. This is the BBC, so it's always going to be on the side of the European Union, but let's not forget that Britain has a massive trade deficit with the European Union. So Britain's not going to suffer trade-wise in the way that some are predicting. We buy far more from Europe than we sell to them. There's a lot of fear-mongering. We need not to fall for it. I've said before that the elite, through the banking system they own and the stock market, which they own, can manipulate economic instability to try to change people's minds about Brexit. And how do we know that's not already happened? I've said all along that leaving without a deal is the best option, because that means we're not subject to any policy or law of the European Union, and we're not a member of the single market meaning we can trade on our own terms, we're not bound to accept free movement, and we become a sovereign country again. Anything less than that is not a true Brexit, and it's Brexit that was voted for. Well, Brexit may be a bumpy ride to begin with, and some financial and economic, and some financial and economic manipulation could well play a part, but the choice is stay in a bureaucratic dictatorship, constantly centralising power into the hands of fewer and fewer people, until it's in the hands of a tiny few people dictating to the whole of Europe. A vessel, eventually, for world government policy and law. Or leave and become a sovereign, independent nation once more. Able to make our own rules and act on our own terms. God, that's a hard choice, isn't it? And there's another article here on Sky News. PM disappointed as Corbyn fails to take up offer of Brexit talks. Theresa May has said she's disappointed Jeremy Corbyn is yet to take up her offer of talks on Brexit after surviving a no-confidence vote called by the Labour leader. Speaking in Downing Street, the Prime Minister said a door remains open to Mr Corbyn who has called on Mrs May to rule out a no-deal Brexit before he will hold talks with her. The PM's address came after she survived an attempt by the opposition to oust her, prevailing by 325 votes to 306, a majority of 19. Mr Corbyn tabled the motion of no confidence in the immediate aftermath of the PM's Brexit deal being overwhelmingly rejected by MPs on Tuesday. Conservative MPs have voted against their leader on an EU withdrawal agreement, then rallied around her, along with the DUP, to see off the opposition's attempts to remove Mrs May from Downing Street.
I believe it is my duty to deliver on the British people's instruction to leave the European Union, and I intend to do so, the PM said outside number 10. So now MPs have made clear what they don't want, we must all work constructively together to set out what Parliament does want. That's why I am inviting MPs from all parties to come together to find a way forward, one that both delivers on a referendum and can command the support of Parliament. This is now the time to put self-interest aside. Mrs May said she had already held constructive talks with the Liberal Democrat leaders of Vince Cable and Ian Blackford and Liz Savile Roberts. The Westminster leaders of the SNP implied Kimberley respectively. The PM has to return to the Commons on Monday and set out her next steps on Brexit after the rejection of her deal. But Mr Corbyn has made clear that he will only countenance holding talks with Mrs May if she rules out the prospect of Britain leaving the EU without a deal on 29th of March. He told MPs in the Commons after the result of the no-confidence vote was announced, before there can be any positive discussions about the way forward, the government must remove clearly once and for all the prospect of the catastrophe of a no-deal Brexit from the EU and all the chaos that would come as a result of that. The SNP has made clear it wants options like extending Article 50, holding a second referendum and ruling out no-deal to be on the table in the talks. The party along with Liberal Democrats, Greens and Plain Kimberley was also called on Mr Corbyn to back a second referendum now that his no-confidence motion has failed. The Labour leader wants a general election to be held in the first instance and is pledged to renegotiate Mrs May's Brexit deal if he wins power. Well, would there really be much difference with Corbyn negotiating Brexit rather than Theresa May? I mean, Corbyn will just do whatever the EU wants him to do because he is just that personality and he's already said he won't entertain no deal. But then Theresa May's deal in inverted commas was farcical anyway. So would there really be much difference whoever was negotiating Brexit? The article goes on. But the party says all options, including backing another referendum, are on the table if it cannot secure another election. The DUP said the result of the no-confidence vote shows the importance of the Northern Ireland Party's confidence in supply deal with the Tories. The DUP said the result of the no-confidence vote shows the importance of the Northern Ireland Party's confidence and supply deal with the Tories. Deputy Leader Nigel Dodd said the party's 10 MPs had once again made the difference. Although the immediate danger to the PM's position is ceded slightly, she risked losing control of the Brexit process when she sets out her alternative plan to Parliament on Monday. This is because she must table a motion which can be amended by MPs who are expected to use the opportunity to test support for a range of alternatives to the Prime Minister's strategy. These include ruling out no deal, a second referendum and a Norway-style relationship with the EU. In other words, either staying in the EU completely or partially. Labour MP David Lammy, a supporter of the Best for Britain campaign for a second referendum, said the PM was like a broken record. He added, after two and a half years of damaging the country's economy and international standing, while failing to get consensus in Parliament, her refusal to change tack is a historic mistake. If the Prime Minister really cares about the national interest, she would give the public the final say over this Brexit mess with the option to stay in the EU. Well, that would not be about giving the public the final say. The public have had their say. This idea of a people's choice vote is to try to find a way around Brexit. That's all it is. If they cared about the public having their say, then we'd already be out of the European Union. One thing is for certain. Whatever happens with Brexit or could happen or might happen. If it was the other way around, the public wanted to remain, but the political class and the political elite wanted to leave, we'd be out now. If the European Union was against the interests of the political elite and the elite in general, then, well, first of all, it wouldn't exist. But secondly, the leave process would have happened on July 24, 2016. It would have started then, not a year later when Article 50 was triggered. 
So Jeremy Corbyn has said he won't entertain the possibility of a no-deal Brexit. Well, that's exactly what we should be angling for from the EU. A no-deal is the best scenario. We've had scams played on the public mind since the 2016 referendum result was announced. The first scam was the idea of a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit. In other words, not leaving at all or leaving completely. The scam was, okay, the result is leave, but what do people mean by leave? That was the first mind game. The second one you've got now with Jeremy Corbyn and others is the idea that without a deal of any kind, there can be no Brexit, when a true Brexit means no deal. Corbyn, this so-called man of the people, man of the working class, who has been against the European Union for his entire political career, has shown himself to be another politics-playing party leader and is now saying that without a deal, in his mind, there can be no Brexit. And going to the EU and saying, we won't leave without a deal, is just putting the EU in the driver's seat. It's like going to a car showroom with all the cars there and saying, I'm not leaving until you sell me a car. And what's going to happen then is the salesman is going to try to get the best sale that he can from you. It's just giving the EU the driver's seat in the negotiations because they're going to push for a deal which suits them. We're looking at a situation now where Article 50 is more and more likely to be delayed. And the longer Brexit is delayed, the more chance there is of a second referendum, which I've always said that I feel is a possibility. The negotiation for Brexit could be very simple. Theresa May or maybe another leader, a leader that is more aligned with Brexit, a true Brexit, goes to the Eurocrats and says, we're leaving at 11pm on March 29th without a deal on WTO terms. And very quickly, the European Union will be under pressure from the corporations of Europe, the big business of Europe, and will be more than willing to accept a Brexit Britain wants. That's how to negotiate, but Theresa May doesn't do that because she's part of the political class who don't want Britain to leave with the true Brexit. She's just a front person for the political class and the elite. A true Brexiteer leader would make the Eurocrats panic far more. People say they're making such a mess of these negotiations, but it's meant to be a mess because that's a warning to other countries who are thinking of leaving. It's saying, look what happens when you try to leave. If Brexit is diverted or diluted, then at least it will be a trigger for people, those who don't already know, you've not seen it yet. How many people like that can there really be out there now? all the mess over Brexit alone. But for those who don't already know, to see that the political system does not represent the people, it represents the political class and the global elite. It might be a trigger for people to see that. And the next subject this week is keeping on the subject of countries. Israel, this is in the Daily Mail. Israel says it carried out airstrikes on Iranian targets in Syria. Israel's military said it carried out airstrikes on Iranian targets in Syria early Monday after it intercepted a rocket fired from Syrian territory hours before. It said in a statement it was currently striking the Iranian Revolutionary Guard's Quds force in Syria and warned Syria's military against attempting to harm Israeli territorial forces. It provided no further details on the raids. Israel's military said on Sunday its air defense systems intercepted a rocket fired from Syria after Damascus accused Israel of carrying out air raids in the country's south. As Israel announced its strikes early Monday, Syrian state news agency Sana 
said its country's air defense systems had targeted enemy fire. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, one guy in Coventry and a sad hater whom the mainstream media quotes all the time. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights War Monitor reported Israeli missile strikes in the area of the Damascus airport and areas around the capital. It said the missiles hit apparent Iranian and Hezbollah arms depots. Israel has pledged to stop its main enemy Iran from entrenching itself militarily in neighbouring Syria. It has carried out hundreds of airstrikes there against what it says are Iranian military targets and advanced arms deliveries to Tehran-backed Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shiite militia. Israel rarely publicly confirms its strikes in Syria. Not that there would be any consequences for it if it did. The article goes on. Its fighter planes have faced anti-aircraft fire during such raids, but Israeli media reported that Sunday's response included a surface-to-surface missile from Syria. Israel's military said only that it had intercepted a rocket fired at the northern Golan Heights. On Sunday, Sauna quoted a military source saying Syria's air defence went into action after Israel earlier in the day launched airstrikes on the south of the country. The Russian army said Syrian air defences destroyed seven Israeli projectiles after four of the Jewish state's F-16 military planes fired rockets into Syrian territory. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told reporters on Sunday that we have a permanent policy to strike at the Iranian entrenchment in Syria and hurt whoever tries to hurt us. Well, violence and acting psychopathically is the only way Israel knows how to deal with anything. The article goes on. Netanyahu and other Israeli officials have been speaking more openly about the Syria strikes in recent days, with some analysis saying the Premier seems to want to further burnish his security credentials ahead of April the 9th elections. But Israel also risks an escalation with Syria and Iran, as well as possibly further angering Russia. Military coordination between Israel and Russia took a hit after a friendly fire incident in September that led to a Russian plane being downed by Syrian air defences during an Israeli strike. The incident angered Russia and complicated Israel's operations in Syria, particularly after Moscow's delivery of the advanced S-300 air defence systems there in response. Israel has sought to keep its coordination with Russia on track and maintain its ability to strike in Syria. On Thursday, Israeli military officials concluded a series of talks with their Russian counterparts aimed at improving coordination in the war-torn country. Both Russia and Iran are backing Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime in his country's civil war. I'll get to that in a minute. Israel has long had an agenda to balkanize Syria and the Middle East in general, in the way the former Yugoslavia was broken up, for the revisionist Zionist Greater Israel Plan, which is planned to encompass Syria and Iran. It's planned to encompass land from the Nile in Egypt in North Africa to the Euphrates in Iraq. This makes the idea that Britain and America, under Blair and Bush, invaded Iraq just for oil or just for weapons of mass destruction, seem even more ludicrous than it already does. I talk about Zionism in episodes 3, 17 and 28, as well as other episodes. Iran and Syria are enemies of Britain and America and Israel. Sorry, I repeat myself, because they're the same thing. The foreign policy of Israel and the West is the same. Why? What's the common coordinating force here? Zionism. Another reason the West don't like Assad is because he, along with Putin in Russia, have done a much better job than the West of holding back Islamic State and stopping them advancing. Because they've actually been trying. Whatever the West say about Islamic State, they want them to advance, not least because it gives them the excuse to continue invading and bombing countries in that part of the world. 
The long, long-term plan has been for the West to conflict with Russia and China, and there's now military bases surrounding China, as was revealed in a brilliant documentary called The Coming War with China by a real journalist, not many of them in the mainstream media, called John Pildren. It was on Channel 4, but you can see it online. The plan is for World War Three with the West against Russia and China, and we're seeing it unfold. Constant demonization of Russia for everything is just to try to garner support for the conflict. We're seeing the same demonization technique used against Iran and Assad in Syria. The US Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said in 2017 before the House Foreign Affairs Committee that our policy America towards Iran is to push back on this hegemony, in other words, leadership control of one state over another, contain their ability to develop obviously nuclear weapons and to work towards support of those elements inside of Iran that would lead to a peaceful transition of that government. Those elements are there, certainly as we know. In other words, fund, arm and train rebels to attack the regime and then when the regime starts shooting back then condemnation and claims that the country's sovereignty is being threatened by claiming it's the people's sovereignty. And you go in on a supposed humanitarian effort. Exactly what they did in Libya what they tried to do in Syria, but it didn't quite work because Assad's still there. They wanted rid of Gaddafi in Libya. That worked. But Assad's, Assad's proved a bit of a problem for them. Assad's proved a bit of a spanner in the works for them. So... Assad's proved it. Assad's proved a spanner in the works. I am planning at some point in the future, hopefully the near future, to go into the whole Middle East situation in more detail. But this is just basically now describing the situation. And talk about hypocrisy. Rex Tillerson is talking about containing Iran's ability to develop nuclear weapons. When American Britain sends weaponry to tyrannies like Saudi Arabia and Israel, knowing that some of that weaponry they sell to Saudi Arabia will end up in the hands of terrorists. And big, bad, dangerous Iran. Iran has never started a war with anybody. Look at how many wars America and Britain have started. With Trump in power now in the White House, with Zionists like Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, Sheldon Adelson, a casino magnate, Mike Pompeo and Rex Tillerson, Trump's secretaries of state, Vice President Mike Pence and his national security advisor John Bolton, formerly ambassador to the United States in the Bush administration. Israel has basically free reign. Trump is possibly the most Zionist president America's ever had, and think of the competition. I talk about the Zionist influence on politics in episode 10. One element of the greater Israel agenda is to replace the temple at Temple Mount, Haram Ash-Sharif to Muslims or Haram Al-Sharif to Jewish people, with a rebuilt King Solomon's temple, which is believed to have stood on the same spot about a thousand years ago. The name Solomon is interesting because I talked in episode 47 about how prominent Saturn and Saturn's symbolism is in religion and it's very prominent in society in general. 
and every syllable of Solomon means the sun. And in truth, and it will be found eventually, that Saturn is a sun, a form of sun. It's a dwarf star, as I said in episode 47, and explain in more detail. The flag of Israel features a six-pointed star, which is a flattened-out cube. And the cube, especially the black cube, is an ancient symbol of Saturn. The Rothschilds are fundamentally behind Israel, the top of the elite pyramid. They used to be called Bauer. They had a red six-pointed star on their house in Frankfurt, Germany, and they changed their name from Bauer to Rothschild. Roth meaning red, and shield meaning shield or sign. So their very name comes from a symbol of Saturn. So much comes from understanding the driving force behind Israel, Zionism, and the driving force behind Zionism, the Rothschilds, and that's why free and open debate about the Israeli regime and Zionism is attacked, not least by Zionist so-called anti-defamation groups who ironically go around defaming everybody that they target and intimidating venues and even in one instance I know of contacting police and council officials to stop a public event going ahead a speaking event and presentation this is why the Labour Party are being accused of anti-semitism as I explained in episode 10 they can't have people saying these things because of where the understanding could lead and that's precisely why these things need to be said And the next subject this week is political correctness. Again, this is in the Daily Mail. Google VP told employees to stop using the word family after staff complained the term was offensive, homophobic and excluded unmarried people without children, animals and those with multiple trans feminine partners. Incredible. The story goes... Google was forced to backtrack on its use of the word family after staff at its California headquarters kicked off because the term was used in the context of having children has been revealed. We now live in a world where the word family is considered offensive. The article goes on. The tech giant experienced a backlash from its own employees in March 2017 after a presentation about a product aimed at young people seemed to replace the term with the word family, leaving out various groups. Far-right publication The Daily Caller News claimed on Wednesday to have viewed internal communications from an insider in Mountain View where one employee stormed out of a meeting and called the company's poor choice of wording offensive, inappropriate, homophobic and wrong. Would you have ever believed that someone would storm out of a meeting? Because they heard the word family. That's political correctness for you. The article goes on. According to the website, approximately 100 people in Silicon Valley showed they agreed with the person's views by upvoting a statement they posted to the company's board. These are the people driving the technological takeover of society. The article goes on. This is a diminishing and disrespectful way to speak. If you mean children, say children. We have a perfectly good word for it. Family-friendly used as a synonym for kid-friendly means to me you and yours don't count as a family unless you have children. Well, that is what a family is. The employee is said to have written, well, a family is parents and kids. The quote goes on, and while kids may often be less aware of it, there are kids without families too, you know. The member of staff explained further that while their intention was not to completely obliterate the word at the Google HQ, it should not be used when specifically referring to parents. Google's employee added that it conjures up reminders of organisations that use the word family to suggest anyone who isn't heterosexual may not be included. The use of family as a synonym for with children 
has a long-standing association with deeply homophobic organizations, the person continued. This does not mean we should not use the word family to refer to families, but it means we must doggedly insist that family does not imply children. Well, it does. The article goes on. Even the sense, suitable for the whole family, which you might think is unobjectionable, is totally wrong too. It only works if we have an advanced shared conception of what the whole family is, and that is almost always used to mean a household with two adults of opposite sex in a romantic sexual relationship with two or more of their children. Preempting an explanation, the presentation was simply identifying everyone. The writer pointed out that a product for children was unlikely to cater to adults. For example, they added that... What? The writer pointed out that a product for children was unlikely to cater to adults. They're very observant, aren't they? They added that such uses should come to a halt. If you mean that as a synonym for suitable for all people, stop and notice the extraordinary unlikelihood of such a thought. So suitable for the whole family doesn't mean all people, it means all people in families. Well, I always thought it meant suitable for all ages, which is everyone. The article goes on. Which either means that all those other people are not in families or something even worse, the rant continued. Use the word family to mean a loving assemblage of people who may or may not live together and may or may not include people of any particular age. Stop using it to mean children. Others at Google seem to agree according to TDC report. See, this is how it works. Someone, somewhere, decides a word is offensive. And people just go along with it. They don't think about it. They say, oh, okay, I won't use that word. They don't have any independent thought on the issue. An unmarried person who did not have children at the time admitted it bothers me too, and one woman with a boyfriend and no offspring stated, it smacks of the family values agenda by the right wing, which is absolutely homophobic by its very definition. Did I just read that? This person, whoever it is, said of the word family... It smacks of the family values agenda by the right wing, which is absolutely homophobic by its very definition. The article goes on. Someone who was not in a heterosexual partnership explained their definition of the word, which pointed out it should not be linked to one household either. The person commented, My family consists of me and several other transgender feminine folks, some of whom I'm dating. Some of whom you're dating. The article goes on. A married employee you noted she identified as a female, the same sex she was assigned at birth, mentioned she used the word to refer to my husband, my parents, and my pets. The uproar caused Google Vice President Pavni Duandi to chime in on the thread with a vow to change the way they operate. I realise what we said at TGIF might have caused concerns in the way we talked about families. There are families without kids too, and also we need to to be more conscientious about the fact that there is a more diverse makeup of parents and families, Duandi wrote. Who is going to hear the word family and think, well, you know what, I take offence to that because of any of the reasons listed in this article. Who is actually going to think that? The quote goes on, please help us get to a better state. Well, better start with you. Help you get to a better state. Go and see someone to deal with your insanity. The quote goes on, teach us how to talk about it in an inclusive way if you feel like we are not doing it well. As a team, we have very inclusive culture and want to do it right in this area. Well, well, this is part of a much wider agenda. I've said before that the idea is to get rid of family and for children to be 
created from scratch in laboratories and the state is the parent. We're seeing the state increasingly taking control of kids' lives as I talk about in episode 23. One of the ways this started was the feminist movement. I've said before that one of the benefits of that from the elite's perspective, indeed one of the reasons for it in the first place, was to get women into the workplace so they could be taxed like men. Well, it also plays its part in the agenda to break up the family. The Rockefeller family are one of the top families in the elite bloodline network and they're fundamentally behind feminism. Schools are taking more decision making away from parents with holidays, finding parents for taking kids away on holiday in term time. Schools are making more decisions and taking more control away from parents. I talk in episode 23 about the extremes of that. Parents are being forced to vaccinate their child and if they don't, or they don't take the recommended course of action medical-wise for their child, they're seen as being guilty of child neglect and could have their children taken away. In Scotland, they've got the named person scheme whereby a legal guardian representing the state oversees a child's life. And if there's anything they think is wrong or suspicious, they can report it and the child can be taken away. I talk about child stealing by the state in episode 20. So at each stage, more and more power in decision-making is taken away from parents and each stage is promoted and portrayed as unconnected from all the rest. This is a common technique that's used right across society. You know where you're going, but you know you can't go to your goal straight away. So you do it in seemingly random, unconnected steps. And the media will report these steps as random and unconnected because it doesn't realise that there's an agenda driving human society, never mind what it is. So it can only see it at each stage, each step, as random and unconnected. As everybody else does, because that's how the media sees it. Because that's how the people reading the news or writing the news or reporting see it. Because they can only see it in that way, because they know nothing else. The reason for the attempted removal of the words mum and dad and now the reason for the attempted removal of the words mum dad family that we're seeing with political correctness is not about protecting kids who don't have families from being offended it goes much deeper first of all as generations go by the words will be used increasingly less if people go along with it and so the concept won't exist anymore also when you think we think in words. Yes, we think in images as well, but we also think in words. As the language is increasingly reduced and changed, as each generation comes into the world and grows up with this new language, the words to think certain concepts won't exist. So how can people think them or know about them? This is the real reason for the constant language change and restrictions through political correctness. It's just the same as I said in episode 46 about the way that political correctness is contributing to the agenda to erase culture. And of course you're not going to do that overnight, but as generations go by, 
as more and more culture is erased, then kids coming into the world come into a world of no culture because the idea is to just have one overall culture. That's the desire of the agenda. And when you come into the world, you tend to accept that how it is, just the way it is. So in this way, culture disappears through this gradual process. What we're seeing with this story is in a way preparation for the end of the family unit through the end of sexual procreation as a result of the no gender agenda, transgender, fluid gender, which I've talked about many times before, including episodes 3, 5 and 8. The synthetic human agenda plays into this, as does the transhuman agenda, both of which I talk about in episode 11. The transhuman agenda is another way the family unit is being destroyed, as technological communication is replacing some of what used to be face-to-face communication with families. We're seeing the world moving towards a future which is unfolding now, which is a totally different world, a total re-imaging of society, the world, and human life, even not even human then, than we have now. So different that we have to be perceptually prepared for it. And this is where what's known as predictive programming or preemptive programming comes in whereby we have the world, the elite's agenda, desires placed in front of us constantly through film, TV, books, video games, and in other ways as well, so that the subconscious mind downloads so much imagery relating to that particular area of the elite's agenda that it makes the subconscious familiar with the concept, so we become far less resistant and more supportive of the idea than we would otherwise have been without the programming. When you know the agenda, and especially if you're aware of predictive programming, then you can see it a mile off, and this is why pay-per-view exists. And the final subject this week is medicine and technology. This is in the Daily Mail. Drugs may one day be delivered by robots you swallow. Scientists create an ingestible gadget that swims through the body to diseased tissue. Drugs could be delivered by microscopic shape-shifting robots you swallow in the future, scientists believe. Researchers have created the tiny gadgets which are around 5mm in length and can navigate the narrow channels of the human body. The tiny robots developed by Swiss researchers even change shape and speed as they travel through bendy blood vessels and thick bodily fluids. The engineers at ETH Zurich and École Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne, EPFL, have released stunning footage showing the robots in action. The robots, which are yet to be named, are made up of a gel that responds to heat with added magnetic nanoparticles. This allows them to be controlled by an electromagnetic field, the authors wrote in the journal Science Advances. Using origami-designed principles, the researchers led by Dr. Bradley Nelson folded the gel into 3D shapes. To make the robots move effectively, inspiration was drawn from bacteria, which get from place to place via a propeller-like tail known as a flagellum. This was mimicked to create an oar-like extension from the nanorobot to allow it to swim through the body. Microorganisms also change shape to navigate complex environments and occupy a variety of ecological niches, the authors wrote. Nature has evolved a multitude of microorganisms that can change shape as their environmental conditions change, Dr. Nelson said. This basic principle inspired our microbot design. 
When tested in a sucrose solution with a similar viscosity to blood, the robots move much faster compared to other prototypes, the authors wrote. They also changed shape to squeeze through glass tubes with lots of bendy passages before reverting back to their original size. The robots must be highly flexible if they are to travel through narrow blood vessels and dense fluids at high speeds. Our robots have a special composition and structure that allows them to adapt to the characteristics of the fluid they're moving through, said Professor Salman Sakar, one of the researchers. For instance, if they encounter a change in viscosity or osmotic concentration, they modify their shape to maintain their speed and maneuverability without losing control of the direction of motion. Changes to the robot's shape can be programmed in advance to maximize the robot's effectiveness without the use of bulky sensors or machinery. They can then be controlled by an electromagnetic field or left to navigate their own way through the body by following. Either way, they automatically mold into the most efficient shape. The researchers are working on improving how the robots swim through different fluids in the human body. If studies are successful, they believe the gadgets will be relatively cheap to produce. And there's another section here at the end. AI will make doctors obsolete. A scientist has warned AI will eventually make doctors obsolete. Artificial intelligence has a near unlimited capacity to diagnose diseases and perform surgery more accurately than medics, Dr. Jorg Golden said last November. Dr. Goldhan from ETH Zurich also argues robots may help overcome healthcare funding shortages due to them being cheaper to hire and train than humans. But while Dr. Vanessa Rampton acknowledges AI may be a useful aid to medics, she argues it will never completely replace human healthcare. Computers are not able to care for patients in a sense of showing devotion or concern for the other as a person because they are not people and do not care about anything, Dr. Rampton from McGill University said. We're seeing now the rise of automation and AI taking over more and more jobs in society. And the idea in the end is that AI and robots run everything. I talk about the wider context of this in episode 35. This will obviously contribute to the Hunger Games Society, which I talk about in episode 4, over two parts, because there were so many articles from just that week about expressions of the Hunger Games and 1984 society were already living in, but going deeper and deeper into all the time. Episode 23 is a similar episode except that it's a regular one-part episode. AI has taken over increasingly in society. People will complain about the running down of manufacturing and industry when that's all part of this agenda. First of all, you've got the need to make everyone dependent on everyone else and this is where the mega region, mega city agenda comes in as I explain in episode 4 and where the European Union comes in working in conjunction with planned world government. Because if you want a global dictatorship, you need to create interdependence, because interdependence means control, and independence means choice and therefore freedom. The idea is that nations are broken up into mega-regions, and each mega-region specialises in a particular area, and each country, as we call them now, or series of mega-regions, will specialise in certain areas. This is why, when Ted Heath signed Britain into the EU in 1973, it was known by him at the time that this would include running down Britain's fishing industry because Britain was not planned to specialise in fishing. If you make everyone dependent on everyone else and you control all those points of dependency, formerly countries, now mega-regions, series of mega-regions, ultimately, through your world government and union structure, then you control the world because everyone's dependent on your structure. This story here is a move towards forced medication, as Aldous Huxley talked about in Brave New World, where people were fed drugs which kept people docile and made them love their servitude, in the words of Huxley. 
I talk about pharmaceutical medicine in episode 17, and I talk about health, specifically in episode 44, part 2. Why would a global elite allow a pharmaceutical global cartel to become so prominent and successful that was focused on real healing, if the goal of that elite is to suppress human potential and call a massive amount of the population, for reasons I explain in episode 4 and 11. Alternative methods of healing which are founded on healing knowledge and knowledge of what the body really is and reality really is. Far beyond that of doctor's surgery, hospital, pharmaceutical medicine, healing knowledge are constantly targeted and people selling them or practicing using that knowledge are asked to justify their methods when pharmaceutical medicine can claim whatever it likes with little or no checks. This is because the global pharmaceutical cartel, like the global media cartel, global military, intelligence, food and drink cartel, etc. are all owned by the elite ultimately, so whatever suits them is what these giant corporations or organizations sell and do. All the money which has been poured into cancer research alone, never mind any other condition or disease, and yet the only two methods were given for healing cancer over all the decades that money has been raised to fight cancer can cause cancer. Just think about that for a moment. The two methods were given for healing cancer, the two main methods, can cause cancer. After all these decades of fundraising for cancer research, that's the best we're given. Two methods of healing which can cause cancer, especially radiotherapy. I mean, chemotherapy kills cells, not just cancer cells, it kills all cells. And the question is, have enough cells been killed, cancer cells, before too many healthy cells are killed? It's, it's Russian roulette, and I know there are more targeted versions, but they still run the risk. And radiotherapy is radiation, and what is the cause of cancer? Radiation. Anyone think that's the case by sheer chance? Anyone think that it's just bad luck that we haven't been able to find better cures and the two main methods of treatment can cause cancer? I don't think so myself, personally. Is it not more likely, just by statistical chance that a cure has been found from the money donated, but it's been suppressed. Look at all the sources of radiation in society, not least technological radiation, which I talk about in episode 44, part 2. And that alone is enough to cause cancer. Just that, never mind anything else that can cause cancer. They want a color of the population for reasons, as I say, I explain in episode 4 and episode 11. This story here talks about nanotechnology and i talk about nanotechnology in episode 11 there's a very sinister agenda behind the introduction of technology into the body and all these uses for it like medical uses in this case are ultimately not about the use it's ultimately just an excuse to get the technology in the body it's not so much about why nanotechnology is there why little why tiny robots or tiny minuscule nanotechnology ultimately technology is in the body you know whatever excuse they can come up with to get it in the body whether it's medical use which it is in this case or whatever they're all ultimately just excuses to get the technology in the body now of course nanotechnology takes us on to the technological transhuman agenda which i talk about considerably in episode 11 i talk about so this is the context and these are the connections you don't get from the media because they just focus on one story in isolation without connecting it to other areas because they don't know those other areas exist context and connections 
that's what pay-per-view is all about so that's it for this week that's the news that's the contesting connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye